step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You are now entering Odyssey Station. Please remain seated until docking is complete. Odyssey. Dare to wonder. And now, your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour with Dean Haglund and Phil Lairness. Welcome to year 15 of your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour, which gets started with this very episode, season two, episode 75. I am Phil Lairness, coming at you from Los Angeles after a whirlwind 36 hours in Turlock, California. Turlock! Feel the wrath! I'm Lord Turlock! Enjoy my subdivided highway system! I should really read up on Turlock and some of its unique things. And coming at us from a place in Michigan called Birmingham, it's mm-hmm. television's Dean Hagland. Dean, how are you? It's cold and there. It's very cold, unseasonably cold. Why, there was snow uh, briefly. Whoa. The, I know, yesterday. Or sir, sleet. Let's say sleet. Hotter in Turlock uh, by a factor of 20 degrees. That's not a factor. That's an amount. But <laughs> an amount. if you're going to hit me with math, I don't want to chit-chat. Uh, it, 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 20 degrees warmer than here in Los Angeles, for crying right? out loud. Now, we got into a little bit, uh, went down a rabbit hole on trying to define what Birmingham was to Detroit. And uh, I was knocked down uh, by saying that it was a suburb. Uh, I was knocked down by saying it was a bedroom community, though that does have charm to it. Uh, so are we saying that Birmingham, where you reside, is a neighborhood in Detroit? Like how Hollywood, Los Feliz, Silver Lake are famous neighborhoods in Los Angeles? I'm going to say that, that uh, yeah, but, well, sort of Hollywood is, it's uh, for the longest time, was its own town. Till it needed water, right? And then it became part of L.A. County, 
no, and that's why it's, it's part of Los Angeles. It it doesn't yeah. it doesn't have a mayor. It doesn't have its own city council. It doesn't have. It's not part of L.A. County. It's part of Los John Angeles. Grant was the mayor of Hollywood. Honorary. <laughs> it was honorary. He was the head of the Chamber of Commerce. There right? was no mayor. It's not. It's not a town. You're thinking maybe West Hollywood, but not Hollywood. Right. Uh, this uh, has again gone off the rails. Can somebody <laughs> tell me what Birmingham is? Birmingham, Birmingham is to Detroit as Newtown is to Sydney. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, that's a good analogy. Yeah, I would be- say because you're <laughs> recording from both places. <laughs> I hey, I was uh, as one does when they get uh, their sister out of uh, medical care uh, after almost six weeks. Uh, and return that sister home. I uh, was uh, watching the Waltons with my sister. <laughs> of course you were. My sister remarked that uh, there's a wedding scene, and I feel like that was probably every other Waltons episode had a wedding on wedding on Walton Mountain. Um, yeah. But she remarked that in weddings of the past, you always heard lines. A, a, a long a spoken along the lines of what was said in this episode. Marriage is not to be entered into lightly, but uh-huh. soberly and deliberately, and this is the kicker, and in reverent fear of God. What? You don't recall this? Sure enough, just a, a little cursory research, and that was kind of traditional text. For, for weddings for the longest time. And uh, I'm certainly glad it's not anymore because uh, entering into anything with fear is not uh, particularly healthy. Fear right. closes us. Uh, we want to enter something with wonder and awe, sure. With love, hey, maybe even better. How about all three, in fact? But... Uh, it, that was a good change if they don't say that anymore because well, I, uh, think it, I think it's about fear the wrath of God, like the wrath of Lord Turlock, right? Well, <laughs> you fear, you know, nobody fear. fears, nobody fears the wrath of Lord Turlock, no one, well, no one, yeah. Well, okay, but but you you fear the wrath so that it is uh, the compass to do good and be a better person. Right, right. I get that. But I'm saying that it's, uh, you want to come to it with wonder and awe and responsibility, uh, with responsibility. And the ability to respond to any situation is mitigated by your fear. Uh, How we take something in determines to a large degree how that thing will interact with us. You know, if you enter into something with fear, if you're focused on avoiding the wrath, whatever we focus on avoiding, (laughs) we will bring about. Because where we put our energy, that's what will grow, right? Right. Uh, Unpleasant circumstances, whatever they might be, circumstances that we would prefer not to have in our life, we're often prone to enter in with fear. Think about... uh, you know, medical tests, surgery, right? It's so easy mm-hmm. to go in with fear, uh, so important to be going in activating our own, uh, harnessing our own resources, whatever they are, towards self-healing going in. And fear is not one of them. Right, right. 
it's as if you uh, learn to drive by avoiding the ditches, you will only drive into the ditch. Yeah. Is the metaphor. That philosophy of avoidance, right? Right. A philosophy of nonviolence uh, is not about the absence of violence. A philosophy of nonviolence is not a fear of violence. It is not anti-violence. It is a philosophy, truly a philosophy, which means like any other, it requires a foundation in something. Ah. And that foundation is in love. Because when violence is eradicated, the hard work will only then begin. The hard work being to form healthy, loving relationships within our communities, our families, our own bodies, Right? right? And to enter into something with fear uh, is to inflict a certain amount of violence onto our own bodies, our own nervous systems, right? This, right. Is, not, this is not to say that we ignore fear or that we try to repress fear. Fear will come forward. We don't need to grasp a hold of it to enter <laughs> into something. What we need to recognize, probably, right, is that where there's fear, there is desire. So ah. you use fear when it comes forward as fuel to deepen your connection to another level of your own consciousness, uh, to connect uh -huh. deeper with your own desire, uh, to say, oh, there's fear here. Well, why? What can you replace that with? What is the deeper foundation of wanting to avoid the ditches? What is the deeper foundation of wanting to avoid violence? What is the deeper foundation of wanting to avoid the wrath of God? Is it possible that you want God and the community and your wife to love you? Well, yeah. keep that in mind when you are entering into these things. You want to be loved. Beloved, right? You want to... I, my beloved. Yeah, that, that's going to make me stop watching the news, actually, because that just all seems fear-based. Every news story is, oh, what you don't know will kill you. It's like, oh. Ex exactly. I mean, you're, it's about entering into situations with fear. You know, speaking of the human body of which we were speaking. <laughs> so we were, yeah. So many uh, things have died these past few years in American culture, not just people. You, you only need one episode of our celebrity deaths to know that a lot of people <laughs> have that, died. Yeah. Um, but so many things have died uh, in our culture, uh, like shock and hope and surprise, possibly even irony have died over the last few years. Aww. But I'm pleased to report that hypocrisy is going strong. <laughs> and uh, this is probably not news to you. Along with anger and grievance, uh, hypocrisy might be one of our three chief commodities in the United States of America right now. Fantastic. I'm, and you're pleased to report this. I uh, found myself in a debate about abortion. With, ah. uh, you know, and this is usually something I would avoid at all costs. I would think so. Uh, these are the sort of conversations uh, I avoid because uh, wasn't it Oscar Wilde? Any subject worth debating is worth avoiding altogether. Um, and seriously, though, I uh, don't just avoid it. I feel that most debates, well, most debates merely require an elevation of the conversation. 
often right. through better questions. More on this in a, in a minute. The abortion in particular, I've always felt to be such just a wedge issue whose sole purpose is to be a wedge issue, because if we wanted to really solve the problem, it's a pretty easy elevation out of the debate over whether people should or shouldn't be allowed to get abortions. But in this particular instance, I knew I was speaking with someone, friendly, friendly conversation, with someone who is an anti-masker. Ah. The conversation went along the lines of me pointing out Uh, Women don't particularly appreciate the idea of men trying to legislate what they can or cannot do with their own bodies. And that that is uh, the end of the line of the argument for me. I'm not going to be in a position to tell a woman what to do with her body. I then said to to the man, you know, it's exactly how you feel about being mandated to wear a mask. (laughs) okay you feel you should have the right not to live according to that mandate because no one not at least of all the government gets to tell you what you can or can't do with your body right cover your face he he said that they were different though uh because abortion is about the health and well-being of of another soul, i.e. the unborn baby. It's a matter of health and safety for someone else, and that's where individual liberties find their limitation. And I said, oh, like wearing a mask. (laughs) Yeah, it's about the health and safety of someone else. Irony uh, might be dead, but hypocrisy is not. We we love it. We love it. But I'm not sure. People have said this. People have said irony is dead. Our good friend Mark Hershon has said irony is dead. But I actually have a couple of hopeful observations. Oh. Uh, one is that a bar owner in Northern California got arrested and is facing several felonies for selling phony vaccination cards <laughs> to people who refuse to be vaccinated. Oh, yeah. Uh, I refuse to be vaccinated. I see no value in it whatsoever. Well, apparently you do because you're willing to pay a lot of money for a phony vaccination card instead of getting your free vaccination. (laughs) Well, now that's an excellent point. See, I'm thinking, is, is that not, am I using it correctly? Is that, that might not be, again, like our friend Oscar Wilde, that might not be a literary uh, level of wit, uh, but, it, uh, but, it, but it hints at irony. And then there's this, Dean. Here in California, it is looking like we definitely are on pace to achieve herd immunity on June 14th. That is the date that uh, was uh, targeted And sure enough, that's the date that it looks like we will achieve herd immunity in the state of California, the most populous state in the union, the state in the union with the lowest rate of COVID transmission, June 14th. And what else is June 14th, Dean? Why, it's the Ides of June. No, I don't know. What else is June 14th? It's Donald Trump's 75th birthday. (laughs) If California achieving herd immunity on his birthday is not delicious irony... I have never tasted delicious irony before. <laughs> Get delicious. Getting back to the abortion and the and the point that I was uh, hoping to get to eventually is you know something we've talked about um, in in various milieus, but the idea of elevating conversation through better questions, yes. right? 
And we, we faced this a lot when we were doing The Truth Is Out There, that a lot of topics seemed like they could get out of the contentious if you just could form a better question about them. And right. for me, the, de- the abortion uh, has always been uh, kind of the, the textbook case uh, for this, uh, which is instead of uh, constantly spending all our energy, all our coin in the, round, uh, the realm, election after election since I was a child over uh, we deserve this right, this right is going to be taken away, uh, you shouldn't have this right, uh, can we not ask the question of what do we need to do to remove uh, the feeling that anyone needs to get an abortion in the first place. Right. That is the better question. What are the underlying causes and address those? Analyze the myriad reasons someone might come to the decision of having an abortion and address those. But then you have to set up a policy and programs, and maybe even organizations, that address those issues. Right. Well, why don't we do that? Uh, because that requires hard work. Well, uh, and, and I guess... Uh, if you constantly people. reduce every issue to an argument over rights, then right. you uh, are really ultimately making sure that nothing ever has to get done. Gun control, gun issues, gun violence in this country is another example of this. Right. Yes. And so it becomes uh, leverage. Uh, hot button. Uh, what's that one called? Where well, I, uh, I just think oh, of... Fear-based. I, I, Turn away from fear, like you said. They're going to take away your guns. This is the fear. They're going to take away your guns. And the fear is I have to have my guns because you fear somebody's coming to get you or get your property or get something from you. What the And, you know, you can spin yourself crazy, as many people do, out of fear turning to rage that can only be expressed through a gun somehow because you lost the tools of irony and hypocrisy and a sense of humor to uh, see past that. So or or through uh, you, you express it through your vote. I mean, we're entering the we're entering the ballot. Uh, what do you call it? The polling booth. We're entering the polling booth, the voting booth, uh, with full fear. It seems uh, right. I'm I'm voting for so and so because I'm terrified of what the Democrats, what the socialists will do. I'm terrified of what four more years of Trump will do. I'm terrified of so we're 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 voting in full fear of something all the time. Right. Um, all the time. You know, another conversation that needs to become elevated ever since I was a child, it was a wedge issue and I didn't understand the subject of the death penalty. Uh, for 22 years, Liddell Lee proclaimed his innocence right up until he was executed in 2017. And uh, this past week, it was revealed that uh, DNA testing has proven it wasn't him holding the gun. It was someone else. We get these examples all the time. We get this wrong. We kill innocent people. Our, we're led to believe that the whole setup of the American judicial system is such that it embodies a belief that it's better to let the guilty go free than to convict the innocent. And yet, 
I'm not sure America of 2021 and maybe ever actually feels that way. We may, in fact, be a country that feels like it's better to even execute some innocent rather than run the risk that any guilty go free um, because we're so scared, especially if those innocent, by the way, are people of color. Yeah, and the death sentences have always, have never been a deterrent. It's always been for the survivors of whatever travesty, tragedy, uh, crime committed that uh, no one has ever committed a crime going, oh, you know what, maybe I'm not going to murder because I will get the electric chair. I don't think that's ever... Yeah, the, de- the deterrent factor has been pretty well disproven. But there have been many cases where even the survivors have said, please don't make the lasting legacy of our loved one the murder of another person, the state-sanctioned murder of another person. And, and, and it hasn't mattered. The, you know, the execution has been what was sentenced. Um, yeah, so many of the arguments, though they might be sound, the concept of deterrent, I understand why that was a concept. I understand why the concept of, hey, we can't afford to house these people for life is a concept. But the cost, oh, the cost. If we just do it in terms of dollars, never mind the cost to our national psyche, to our soul, to our morality, if we have such a thing, um, the cost uh, means, if you look at it dispassionately, it makes financial sense to do the right thing here to do away with the death penalty because it costs exponentially so much more to put a prisoner to death than to house them for life. Does it? Yeah. Uh, I would the other way around. Uh, no. You, the, the costs of the mandatory appeals, the costs in judicial system, the costs uh, of housing someone on death row – and uh, the security unique to that, and the round-the-clock uh, suicide surveillance, because we love that, mustn't let death row right. prisoners whose days are numbered take the easy way out by killing themselves. Um, that tells a lot about us, too. Yeah. huh? There you go. You're not going to rob us of what? The pleasure of killing. How did we get here? We got an email from a listener, Dean, uh, regarding last week's celebrity death of uh, the beloved child actor who played Rusty from Tin Tin Tin. The email begins, hi, Phil. No, Dean. No, Dean. I'm sorry. Too too late. (laughs) Naturally, I listened to the most recent podcast and was informed of the death of Lee Aker, although it probably wasn't worth mentioning, but you left out perhaps the most interesting aspect of his career. In in his later years, he was the victim of a most bizarre identity theft. What? Some guy started showing up as one of the celebrities at movie Western conventions throughout the country, signing autographs and telling stories of working on the adventures of Rin Tin Tin. (laughs) the problem was he was not Lee Aker. He just said he was, and for the longest time, nobody questioned him. He got away with it until, as I recollect, he was in an autograph show with Paul Peterson. Paul and Lee were friends when they were child stars, so it didn't take long for Paul to realize the deception. (laughs) This story, at least to me, is so weird on so many levels, including the fact that the guy wished to palm himself off as a celebrity, so he chooses Lee Aker. (laughs) 
Yeah, no. Well, no, but that's a good, I mean, you know, uh, you can only take that so far because technically uh, you, the, everybody else, the fan base and or aging involved. So I, I can't even think of another actor that could possibly yeah. personate. Well, on, so on the other hand, nobody knew what Aker looked like as an adult, so it did give him right. a chance at pulling it off. Best Maurice. This is from our friend Maurice Terenzio. Ah, yeah. I mean, there is the obvious, uh, who would claim to be Lee Aker who was not, in fact, Lee Aker? And also, was he getting an appearance fee? Like, uh, what was Lee Aker's asking price at the conventions? Or was he just doing it for free, showing up, going, oh, hey, I'm Lee Aker? Well, he probably oh, was um, getting money for the autographs, as you know, at the very least. And there's a certain charge, a certain kick out of uh, people treating you that way. Remember the time I went to the Vinoteca wine bar and... Uh, was interrupted during my meeting with Robbie Consing when I realized a bunch of people were gathered around me and uh, suddenly they're asking, are you Peter Gabriel? And <laughs> I uh, started laughing because it had been decades since this happened. Back when Peter Gabriel and I in the 80s both sported hair, I was mistaken <laughs> for him. Uh, but now here we were, neither of us sporting hair, and I'm again being mistaken for him. And I thought it was odd that I had walked into this a totally packed wine bar, and the bartender immediately made eye contact with me, rushed out and said, uh, okay, I, I know it looks crowded. I'll find you a place. Just follow me. Removed a reserved sign off a table for eight people and then apologetically said, look, if this group shows up, I'll, I'll kick some people out and then get you a, a, a smaller table. Wow. Uh, we didn't have reservations. We didn't. I just made eye contact with the bartender. And I thought, well, I am kind of a big deal in the neighborhood. So then it wasn't until they're gathered around me saying, uh, are you Peter Gabriel, that I realized, uh, oh, now I understand why the bartender did this. And so I'm laughing, and I said, I'm sorry. I, uh, Robbie then comes in over me and says, am. He is. <laughs> and I spend the next, uh, you know, 15, 20 minutes signing autographs and hearing people's stories about why I matter to them so much. Wow. Uh, and at no point did I even attempt an accent. Why was it that my obviously being American didn't uh, raise any suspicions? You're listening to Odyssey. But, uh, but everybody wanted to tell me their stories about their connection to my music. Um, you know, oh, In Your Eyes was our first dance at our wedding. And, and I looked at them and shrugged and said, well, it's a good choice. It, it's, it certainly beats Shock the Monkey. And so I'm signing In Your Eyes, Peter Gabriel, on all these... Uh, no. On it because I, it's my kind of winking way of letting them know I'm only Peter Gabriel in their eyes. Nice. Wow. So now I'm going to hop on eBay and see how many Peter Gabriel autographs are for sale. <laughs> <laughs> I've told you before about being with uh, Ray Bradbury 
uh, on the campus of UCLA, where yeah. I, you know, I was an assistant in in one of his classes, and uh, and I remember, you know, coming across campus afterwards, and uh, somebody came up wanting to meet him because they wanted to thank. Uh, him for Star, for Star Trek, right? And uh, uh, he was so gracious and so kind. And I said, you know, it's amazing that you didn't like correct him. And he said, you know, I used to. When I was younger, I did. It used to annoy me a bit. Um, but then I realized, you know, Star Trek's a great work. It's, it's cool that people love Star Trek. And right. if it makes them feel good to feel like they thanked the person responsible for so much joy they experienced. Why would I need to take that uh, away from them? And, yeah. and I thought that was like really healthy. And, and, and he said, and besides, I've got to believe that Gene got mistaken for me from time right. to time, right? People thanked him for Fahrenheit 451, yeah. and uh, which was written there on a typewriter at UCLA, it must be said, Oh, uh, in the library, in the research library. There's still a plaque there, or at least last time I looked decades ago, there was still a plaque where that was written. But then as we walked a little bit on longer, I said, well, yeah, but what happens when they get home and they realize that Gene's been dead for <laughs> more than a year? And uh, he said, well, then it becomes one of my stories. <laughs> That's fantastic. But there are so many great examples. Remember the guy that used to uh, impersonate Stanley Kubrick? There was a whole movie made about this, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, who? Well, I mean, the whole idea was just that nature abhors a vacuum. And right. in a world where Stanley Kubrick... Uh, refuses to have a public persona, uh, that public was desperate for experiences of being able to have said, I met, I talked to Stanley Kubrick, and this guy uh, ended up uh, probably taking it too far. I mean, uh, he used it to have free meals all over, free lodgings all over, Uh, sexual conquests all over. And I think it was at that point that Kubrick felt the need to kind of uh, make sure that this was uh, was shut down. Um, yeah. You know, I forget the details of, you know, what... The, I know the guy was charged with crimes and fraud. But, you know, for the longest time, even people who knew they'd been billed didn't do anything about it. Um, and one wonders, like, how much of it is embarrassment and how much of it is a willing uh, belief wanting to believe that you met someone because of the story that you have to share then. Right. There's a whole website of uh, celebrity photos that aren't that celebrity uh, that people call out. And so I forget the name of it, but I know I've seen people posing with going, hell oh my gosh, I just, I just met uh, any celebrity and it's, and it's not them. What's cool is that it's Kubrick, right? That it was a filmmaker that mattered so much. So much, um, yeah. There's one of the great films of the 90s, one of the greatest Iranian films of all time at a time when Iranian films might have been the most poetic, most humanistic uh, cinema uh, anywhere on the planet. Uh, I, I think I've talked about this before, uh, but the, uh, the film Close Up, and it's uh, about a real-life case. They're in Iran of a popular uh, film director being imitated and uh, uh, and the court case that came about 
uh, because this guy was imitating him. And uh, one of my takeaways of it was how extraordinary to live in a, a culture where being a poet or being a filmmaker uh, mattered so much to the people that right. that would actually get you stuff. Yeah. Yeah, right? That uh, is amazing, actually. I mean, here, if you claim to be a famous poet, if you claim to be a famous filmmaker, uh, you know, that and 595 gets you a latte. <laughs> I mean, uh, I was in line once behind Michael Bay, as you know, at a coffee bean and tea leaf, and Michael Bay had to pay full pr- freight and had to wait in line. And you're the only one that knew you were in line with Michael Bay. Well, I think he gave his name to the barista. I don't know. <laughs> Probably. Um, as director Michael Bay? Yeah. He had to write all of that on the cup? Yeah. I mean, do I share the full story now, or do we? No. For the best, I guess, as we do have some classic filmmakers who also uh, were contemporaries, are contemporaries? I don't know what Michael Bay is doing, but of Michael Bay to discuss. Um, And of course, these are filmmakers that uh, have been making classic movies really uh, every decade since they first came on the scene in the 1980s, and that's the Coen brothers. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, I missed the news, but you know, 36 years of making movies through 2020 the Coen brothers, 36 years. Uh, They made 18 movies in those 36 years. Uh, And it's amazing how they break out. Like the first 12 years, they made six movies. The next 12, they made seven. Uh, The most recent 12 years, they made five. Classics in each period. Um, uh, But in this, of what would have been the 37th year of their partnership, they are no more. They've broken up. What? The Coen brothers, yeah. The tragedy of Macbeth will only be written, directed, produced, and edited by Joel Cohen. His brother Ethan will not be co-directing, co-writing, co-producing, co-editing. Because apparently the quote in true Coen brothers fashion was, I just didn't want to. Um, <laughs> so they're not making movies together anymore. And wow. I feel like that warranted uh, more headlines. Uh, yeah. I would say so. Now, and this is the thing, they're brothers, so they had a shorthand of communication, which you know is the key to any great production, is communication between the departments, and uh, and that uh, given the heavy lifting that all those departments have to do, it's good to have someone, you know, like your brother, uh, be there for you, go with some uh, artistic questions, decisions, uh, a way forward. So I'm going to be watching this with vast interest now. Yeah. And, you know, a Coen Brothers take on Macbeth certainly seemed promising. Right. Um, and now it's not a Coen Brothers. It's it's a Joel Coen. Uh, yeah, but don't you think Joel will just like, you know, one tough day, on, uh, he'll just make a phone call to his brother and go, hey, what would you do? <laughs> no. Uh, oh, maybe I don't know. I really, I, I, I can't know. I mean, what we don't know about the Coen Brothers and how they work uh, could fill a whole show. And in fact, <laughs> we've been threatening to do a series of special shows all about the great filmmakers. I yeah. think it's time to do a deep dive. Let's. We don't need to go in chronology 
of uh, the great filmmakers. Let's make this the first special episode we, we record. Let's do an entire show all about analyzing and appreciating uh, the, the works of the Coen brothers uh, right. at this particular juncture, uh, when it seems like they, they, they won't be making movies together anymore, and that uh, new chapters uh, for both of them, uh, it seems, are about to begin. I will say I, um, I've been working with the script for Burn After Reading uh, for some of my acting classes. Oh, yeah. And uh, this is a film I really look forward to revisiting. Um, because the script is really, boy, it's it's remarkable and so nihilistic, just uh, almost more nihilistic in its own way than No Country for Old Men, even. Remember this with Brad Pitt and in the gym, right? And that's that's the story. One of the stories I want to share with you, real quick, is um, they wrote it for Brad Pitt, and he always jokingly said, "The guy's the the most stupid person who's ever walked the planet." The character, so I didn't quite know how to take it when they said they wrote it for me. But I did point out to them, uh, I think I'm going to have a lot of problem. I don't know if I can do this. Well, well, what's the problem? He said, look, I don't know how to play someone who is just so relentlessly stupid. And uh, Joel just looked at me for a long time and finally said, you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Ow! And uh, uh, and then the other one was uh, it was the third of the idiots that George Clooney would play for the Coen Brothers after the uh, the movies uh, Intolerable Cruelty and of course his first collaboration with them uh, Oh Brother Where Art Thou so when the, when they they wrapped him uh, you know and let's have a big hand of applause for for George Clooney that's a rap picture rap on George Clooney he said. Uh, and that's uh, the last of the morons I will be playing. And uh, the Cohen brothers said to him, oh, so you're not going to work with us again? <laughs> and sure enough, he plays Baird Whitlock in Hail Caesar, uh, the movie star moron. And it's one of my favorite George Clooney performances. Mine too. Uh, in any movie. And what a great name, Baird Whitlock. Boy, they come up with some great names. Gardner Chubb is the uh, head of the CIA in, uh, in uh, Burn After Reading. Anyway, yeah. oh my goodness, and in that movie, and then we'll let, we'll let uh, Burn After Reading go, but in the script, um, you know, uh, Richard Jenkins, who I remember so fondly in that movie, playing the head of the manager of Hard Bodies, the gym. Uh, yeah. And it was really one of the movies that helped, like, break Richard Jenkins out into a new level of, of, of notoriety uh, after so many decades as just a go-to character actor, right? But right. Uh, in the script, every time the character's introduced, it's as Ted the soulful manager of hard bodies. Not just the first time, every time he enters a scene. It's, uh, you know, character looks up and goes, oh, hey, Ted. He sees Ted, the soulful manager of hard bodies. And darn if that's not what Richard Jenkins is playing in every moment of that movie is the soulful manager of hard bodies. In fact, in his last scene, uh, one of the characters even says, I know you, you're that idiot from the gym. And the guy's got a gun pointed at him and he interrupts to say, I'm not here representing hard bodies. <laughs> it and, does require a second. Yeah. Movie. 
let's do a let's do a deep dive into them in the very near future. I think that would be big fun. I of course I, played uh, us in uh, on our second uh, half tonight with uh, uh, "I Am a Man of Constant Sorrow" from right. the aforementioned uh, mm-hmm. "Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?" And I thought we would at least uh, tonight doff our caps to the Coen Brothers with a Coen Brother themed movie ad game. <gasps> oh. This should be easy. Yeah, I'm not going to give you the years. I'm gonna right? I'm gonna jump around a little bit. Not going to give you the years since you know uh, you got a one in eighteen chance, man, on each <laughs> one of these. Well, yeah. When you say those are my odds, that that puts the pressure on me even more, doesn't it? Uh, there's only one thing stranger than what's going on inside his head. What's going on outside? There's only one thing stranger. Uh, what's going on? Holy smokes. So it's a meditation on, uh, oh, what's that black and white one with, um, um, oh. Billy Bob Thornton? Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah. The barber. The man who wasn't there, uh, not going to lie, I wanted that to be the first one. I could not find an ad that had (laughs) ad copy in it. Um, so, uh, no, you are incorrect. Chunks. Okay, so what's weirder than what's inside his head is what's going on outside. Well, then, uh, uh, holy smokes, I don't know. The man. image shows the lead, the bespectacled lead actor staring at a mosquito uh, whose shadow is writ large on his forehead. Mosquito on his forehead. Oh, uh... Why are all the movies... Rod Lurie, uh, in I think Los Angeles Magazine, I think it was him, uh, but one of the prominent uh, L.A. critics at the time uh, wrote that um, audiences who see this film will know what audiences must have felt like in 1941 when they saw Citizen Kane. What? No. And I think that was barely hyperbole. It was very much that kind of experience for me. Uh, the Big Lebowski, then. Barton Fink. Barton Fink. That's what I would, That was my next guest. It Barton Fink. Say what you will about that film. It definitely had the Barton Fink feeling. Okay, <laughs> their lawless years are behind them. Their child rearing years lay ahead. Uh, Raising Arizona. Raising Arizona. Here's the the tagline: a comedy beyond belief. Yeah. <laughs> their second film and their first, uh, we can say, you know, big hit. It was big a big hit. hit. Yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh, so good. All right. Finally, the greatest criminal minds of all time <laughs> have finally met their match. Uh oh, brother, where art thou then? Incorrect. What? The greatest criminal minds have my, uh, well, then burn after reading. Is that that line? No. Then Blood Simple. It's got to be Blood Simple. This is a film, a Coen Brothers film, that many people conveniently forget, though no one who's ever seen it forgets the original on which it was based. This is one of two remakes that the Coen Brothers have made. One's, uh... True Grit, didn't they do that? Yes, absolutely yeah. right. And it was an excellent, it's almost a textbook on how to do a remake. Yeah. What was the other remake? 
that would be this one. The greatest criminal minds of all time have finally met their match. The fact that you, of all people, are missing such a wonderful promotional opportunity by not naming the title of this film. Me, uh, of all people. Yeah, is disturbing. It is disturbing. I'm disturbed already. Uh, Starring Tom Hanks. Uh, a serious man. No, what the hell? The one Coen Brothers movie to star Tom Hanks. It is a remake of the classic Ealing comedy. It's the Lady Killers. Oh, they did that? <laughs> yeah, they mm-hmm. did that indeed. I mean, wow. That wow. was when some of us began to worry about the Coen Brothers. Yeah. But, you know, we made a movie that was similarly titled, a doff of the cap to this title. Of course, The Lady Killers of the Coen Brothers and of Ealing, one word, The Lady Killers. Our movie, completely different. It's The Lady Space Killers. Right. It's uh, a totally different uh, scenario, uh, but certainly a uh, an ensemble doff of the cap at certain points. People can find out more at theladykillersmovie.com. They should. It's... They should. Uh, if, uh, t- if, if darkness is uh, your cup of tea, then uh, you won't find it more rich, more dark than at theladykillersmovie.com. The year that was was one of the most unusual years, obviously, for, for films uh, in history. Uh, we did just have the Oscars. We finally put it to bed. We've, uh, it's so strange to realize we ought to be in the start of the summer movie season. Uh, that seems like it'll probably start July, right, when big Marvel films open and when probably people are back in cinemas across the the, the country, if not the globe. Um, But before we let go of 2020 entirely, I thought I would take a little bit of time over coming episodes to mention a couple of movies uh, each time that may have slipped under the radar, Oh. Um, that are worthy of people's uh, attention and maybe even your attention, Dean Haglund. Very good. Increasingly, I find that I'm not viewing or reviewing movies through the prism of whether this is good or bad. I find that I am asking uh, myself, you know, what were the aims? Uh, how were they achieved? Um, and, you know, was a vision expressed? And then what audiences might really uh, benefit, uh, maybe through entertainment or enjoyment, maybe through expansion, maybe through inspiration, uh, maybe through being shocked into a new way of looking at things, but what audiences uh, might really benefit from a, a particular film? So anyway... Uh, With that in mind, here's two films that uh, certainly may have been overlooked by most people. The first is The Assistant, and it's uh, actually a 2019 American drama film uh, written, directed, produced, and edited by Australian filmmaker Kitty Green. And it stars Julia Garner, Matthew McFadgen, uh, Mackenzie Lee, uh, and the film had its uh, world premiere uh, at the Telluride Film Festival in August of 2019, was released by Bleecker Street 
on January 31st, 2020. So it had a limited release just prior to the pandemic. And this is why, again, I believe that it, it probably slipped past most people's radars. Right. Um, it's uh, basic premise is uh, uh, Julia Garner plays Jane, a recent college graduate and aspiring film producer who's just landed her dream job as a, a junior assistant to a powerful entertainment mogul, think a Harvey Weinstein, there in New York. Okay. And uh, it's set entirely in one day on wow. the job. And it's a day that is utterly like any other. For her. <laughs> this is not an extraordinary day in any way. That's the point of it. Oh, yeah. She makes coffee. She orders lunch. She arranges travel accommodations. She takes phone messages. Uh, and as she follows her daily routine, she and we grow increasingly aware of the abuse that insidiously colors every aspect of her work day. About the harsh and almost violent uh, working conditions there at the production company uh, through an accumulation of degradations against which she finally decides to try and take a stand. And uh, it has been called, quite honestly, I believe, the first true Me Too movie. Oh. It, it has a terrific, truthful, heart-wrenching performance by Julia Garner that anchors the film, uh, it was nominated for three Film Independent Spirit Awards, including Best Actress, Screenplay, and Cinematography. It is not everyone's cup of tea. I'm not saying everyone should see it. If people are interested in what authentically uh, harassment in the workplace looks like and how often uh, it's about the workplace environment and not necessarily abuse that's being leveled directly at someone... Right. Yeah, um, the culture. The culture, exactly. And so if anyone's interested in that, I certainly suggest that they see it. Um, but I do believe, Dean, it should be must-viewing at any film school, at any uh, intern training program. Anyone entering the business needs <laughs> to see this. Wow. Because only, ultimately, will real change come from the bottom up. Real change is not going to come from the top down until the people who are entering now have worked their way up the ladder. And right. it needs to be drilled in them uh, so that by the time they achieve positions of power, they are not behaving as iterations of the people who came before them. Right. Yes. To change the culture. Be the change you want to see. Or that you might not even know that you wanted to see, quite frankly. Right. Uh, yeah. Until you see a movie like The Assistant. The other film that I do believe, uh, Dean, uh, is one that uh, you might very well uh, take a liking to, is a, a 2020 science fiction psychological horror film from Brandon Cronenberg. Is that Ooh. name familiar yes is that the son of david cronenberg uh, yes the son of david cronenberg uh this is his second feature film uh, uh -huh. it was a co-production of canada and the uk it stars andrea riceborough christopher abbott uh, mm. uh jennifer jason lee and sean bean it's called possessor have you heard of oh. this film i haven't even a little 
Uh, this, like The Assistant, hailed by critics, both uh, made a lot of critics' lists. Uh, the Assistant was even hailed as one of the 20 best films by critics, critic consensus. This, not uh, quite so high, but really, really embraced by, uh, by many, many critics. It had its world premiere at the Sundance Film Festival uh, January of 2020 and was released in the U.S. and Canada on October 2nd. Uh, by Neon, of course, uh, a a very limited theatrical uh, be- because of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, it was praised for its originality and f- especially for the performances by Riseborough and Abbott, who are both terrific. The basic premise, because I don't want to give away too much, though it, it must be said that this is not one of those films that you're really watching for the plot. You're watching for how the plot unfolds. It is yeah. for the telling of it. It's, uh, it's about a woman named Tasia Voss, an elite, uh, even legendary, corporate assassin. Oh, but so yeah. Tasia Voss is an elite corporate assassin who takes control of other people's bodies using brain implant technology and uses those people to execute her high-profile targets. Wow. So it's like, uh, did you ever see that Japanese film, uh, Cure? Where oh, of course. Hip- of course. Yeah. yeah. Hypnotizes others to kill for him. It's, yeah, it's so like this that. is a this is l- like that. Um, of course, what's rule number one in assassination, Dean? You have to kill the assassin. Oh, that's rule number one in assassination. You have to kill the assassin, and uh, so that rule is very much uh, present uh, in wow. t- in Tasia Voss's work. Convenient for her that she's technically not the one pulling the trigger on any right. of these, right? Um, and uh, so Christopher Abbott, uh, Andrea Riceborough, just terrific, plays Tasia Voss. And Christopher Abbott plays uh, one of the bodies she usurps uh, and one whose will might be a little bit stronger than some of the others and Ooh. who resists uh, what she is doing. Wow, fight the power. Uh, Possessor. It's a, it's a great deal of fun. Uh, it's brutal at times. It's dark. Uh, but what a fun take on the espionage assassin uh, genre. Oh, well, good. I hope it's more fun than Tom Clancy's Without Remorse. I watched that yesterday. That was in all supposed to be the big action start of a new franchise, the new, the new locomotive for an assassin. Same thing. He's a Navy SEAL that shoots people and then gets a new identity after he drives his... Uh, well, anyway. Oh, well, yeah, this is uh, starring uh, Michael B. Jordan. Yeah, he's great in it. And uh, and Jodie Turner-Smith, there's a character. She's uh, no-nonsense. She does. She's great at her job as a senior lieutenant, something or other. There's no uh, romantic nothing. She doesn't break her ankle running away from... Uh, you know, anybody, it's like, oh, here's a female character you can get behind. And uh, yet the film, you know, and the whole thing is shot in the dark. <laughs> like, I'm not sounding like my mom going, it's too dark. But uh, your whole production design seems to be at night, uh, low lighting, a lot of uh, uh, fog machines in, in work, in process. And uh, boy, you know, 
it, it needs two things. It needs a, a better production design and probably the, uh, the storyboard work of Robbie Consing, I think. Belated spoiler alert. Odyssey. Dare to wonder.